0: Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. I'm here
1: today with Tobias Carlisle, he's a value investing expert, a former attorney, Fantastic writer. He's written some of the best investing books I've ever read, including Quantitative Value, which takes you through systematically some of the great quantitative variables that are involved in successful value investing. He's written Deep Value and The Acquirer's Multiple, which are also great books that take you through kind of the mechanics of mean reversion with some real world examples and some quantitative examples. He's also written Concentrated Investing, which is an excellent book that I recommend. It takes you through the uh, stories of very concentrated value investors like John Maynard Keynes and Lou Simpson. It takes you through their strategies along with some ideas about portfolio construction and position sizing. He runs an excellent podcast, Value After Hours, with uh, Bill Brewster and Jake Taylor. I recommend you check that out. He also runs value-based ETF called Zig, which combines um, quantitative and qualitative characteristics to find high-quality value names. So welcome to the podcast, Bias, and it's uh, nice to chat with you.
0: Thanks, VSG. That was a very kind introduction. I should also mention I I manage a small and micro ETF called Deep. Same strategy, just in a small and micro universe.
1: Excellent. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your investing journey, like where you started in investing, some strategies you've tried, and how you've gotten to your current approach?
0: Yeah, I think like many people, I had a friend in when I was in university in Australia, who said the richest man in the world is Warren Buffett and he runs an insurance company? And I thought, well, that's vaguely interesting, but not—I don't, I'm not going to run an insurance. I have no interest in insurance. That sounds really boring. You know, it's like it's like hearing that you know currently the richest man in the world runs a luxury goods company. Like that's fascinating, but it's not really particularly relevant to me specifically. And then he said, but he writes these great letters that are free on the internet. He writes an annual letter every year where he outlines his strategy. And, you know, this stuff is pretty good. So I went and got the letters and I read them. And I kind of under I understood, you know, in broad terms, the idea that value is Is this uh, quality that a company can have and the price can deviate from the value for a variety of reasons, just because the business is not very interesting. People are kind of action junkies in the market. I think really the last few years have shown how much people are action junkies in the market because there's been this like rolling bubble that's gone through crypto tech companies. What before then? There's been a few kind of uh, like NFTs, I guess. NFTs.
1: Uh, there's been a rise in sports gambling. Sports gambling. Yeah. Who's in with that?
0: People are into action. They're not so much into like buy something and then wait three to five years to see if you had a good idea three to five years ago. Like that's nobody's interested in doing that. And having read through the letters, then you know you gather from the letters that his teacher was Benjamin Graham and Benjamin Graham's written two sort of iconic books that I'm sure you've heard of them given the name of this uh, <laughs> this podcast. Everybody has. So I, because I like ancient literature, I like original documents, I went and found the 1930 or whatever, the first, 1934 edition, which is all about railroad bonds. It's really, really tough to read. I can't honestly say that I read it cover to cover. I sort of looked through it, and I thought I get the flavour. Like, I've got the idea. I know basically what we're trying to do. And I was studying... I did business, which was the name of the degree in addition to my law degree. So the business was like, a, that was my undergrad. It was like a mix of accounting and marketing and finance and management, other stuff like that. But I had enough accounting in there that I understood the accounting and enough finance that I understood the finance. And then I read The Intelligent Investor. Honestly, didn't do a great deal for me initially. I think that The Intelligent Investor, as I've gone along, I've got much more appreciation for The Intelligent Investor. I do think that that's, it's one of those, I think Buffett. Like many documents, they sort of, it takes a, you need a little bit of life experience sometimes to understand why these things are important. And often, mostly what the thing that you miss when you're young is the risk element. You can see the returns, but you don't see all of the other paths that don't end up where you're Warren Buffett. There are lots of other paths that end up in, you know, just blowing up the account or bankruptcy. And that's, that's why I think a lot of the, the reason that we have these cycles in the markets, the reason that we have, we return over and over again to these bubble kind of bust boom-bust behaviors is because you get a new crop of investors who weren't burnt in the last one. They're absolutely fearless. And they can't (laughs) understand why everybody else is just hanging back a little bit. And it is the person who is the least risk averse, who is there right at the very end, right at the absolute peak of the market, who thinks that they are an absolute genius and everybody else is old and doesn't (laughs) understand this new paradigm right before they are humbled and join the rest of us in in our humility. So that was sort of the I don't think that the mechanics of value investing, I don't think that investing itself is particularly intellectually taxing. I think it's like, you can, it's it's just a, it's a trade really that anybody, I mean, a tr- not not a trade in the sense of trading, a trade in the sense of mm-hmm. like, you can learn how to build a house. You can learn how to, I'm not saying anybody can do it. I'm saying if you spend enough time in any single thing, you can learn how to do it. It's not that hard. What it really is to be successful in all of these things, what it requires is, and Buffett says this over and over again, it's one of those things the first time I read it, I just, I don't don't think I even saw it. I just probably just skipped straight over it. (laughs) But he was talking about character and temperament. And the longer I do it, the more I really realize how important those two things are in the sense that if everybody's excited about something, you just have to be able to look at it yourself and say, I don't get it and not feel like you're an idiot for saying, I don't get it. Just, you just don't get it. That's okay. Not everything's for you. And you have to be able to buy something and have everybody else say that's stupid or that's boring or that's going to be too slow. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go a bit faster and say, I don't, "Well, it doesn't matter because that's I have my own set of goals." I know what i'm trying to achieve it doesn't really matter what everybody else is trying to achieve i've got what i'm trying to do and i know that every time i've made the mistakes that i have always really regretted it's been when people particularly people who i know and respect are in something and i look at it and i don't understand it but i'm prepared to put that aside because i like them and i go into it not fully having internalized it and those are all the biggest mistakes that i've made so i'm at the point now right i don't really know what other people have in their portfolios I have my own things in my own portfolio and I, and I don't really care what anybody else thinks, honestly. I, I have this very its I deep value, which means that I'm buying the cheapest stuff in the market. I try to buy in that cheap stuff, not necessarily the highest quality, but I'm just trying to get something that's better quality than I'm paying for and is sufficiently good quality as an operating business for the most part. That over time, the market will, it should sort of trade along with its operating business. Mm-hmm. And you get the the valuation closing, and then you get the performance of the operating business. And I'm sort of, I will be selling out somewhere between the closing of the discount and the performance of the operating business. I'm not really... A compounder guy who'll hold on once it gets to fair value and just try and ride the quality of the business for a long time. I'm really looking for that. It's undervalued. Now it's getting closer to being more fairly valued. So I'm just going to move on to the next thing where I think that, I th- and I think that that's to me, that's the lowest risk way of doing it. And I know that people disagree. There's a lot of, I don't know how much it has continued to persist, but there was this never sell compounder view for a long time over the last few years. I could never really get comfortable with it. I do understand the tax advantages of doing it. It's just that I have been on enough round trips now that. I think that when I get my price, I'm much more likely to be a seller. And often I think that there's just something more interesting. There's just cheaper stuff out there. It's not hard to fill a portfolio. I have 30 names in my mid and large portfolio. I've got 100 in my small and micro portfolio. There are thousands of companies out there. I'm talking about holding like half a percent of the names out there. And I'm confident I can always find something that's more interesting than something I have in there. So I I tend to buy and sell I look for deeper value rather than you know wonderful companies at fair prices, and that's that's sort of that's been my evolution from learning about it in university and and just getting smashed to pieces over the last sort of I think since two thousand and twelve it's really been when value stopped being easy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really I started investing in two thousand and four was the first time I sort of had any money of my own to invest, and I bought Bud, which was because Buffett bought Bud didn't really know what I was doing but <laughs> trusted him it worked out it caught a bid wasn't a giant return but it was like it might have been 50 percent over a few years or something like that so it was a good outcome mm-hmm. and then I started doing my own thing with net nets and and got better returns there but as I progressed from net nets into the rest of the world it definitely became a lot harder and I think partly it was that's because it's a little bit more difficult to do that as an investor and partly it's also because since 2012 it's been a very tough market for value. There's been no real consistency. There have been good years. There were enough good years that I thought in the good years, that's skill, bad years, that's bad luck, kept me going for a long <laughs> time. And then I think we've been since sort of the silliness of 2019 and 2020 washed away. I think it's been, the market's been more like if buying cheaply does sort of lead to better returns. I think we've kind of turned the corner and probably will be this way for a couple of decades. That's a very long answer. <laughs>
1: No, probably. I completely relate to it, especially when you were talking about revisiting the Buffett letters. So recently, I reread the uh, "How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor." Yeah, and I read it a long time ago, and I didn't really understand any of it. And now I'm reading it in an inflationary environment, like 20 years later, and I'm like, "Oh, now I get what he's talking about."
0: (laughs) That's a great Um, one. I mean, that's that's a great example. And he talks about that a lot. And it's you know a lot of these things. Academically or theoretically, I guess, and it does direct you to. You now you want the lower capital-intensive businesses for the most part, but then it's also a risk-adjusted handicapping event. If the really heavy industrials get deeply, deeply discounted, there, I think you want to hold them too. You know, I think that you know it's it's hard because commodities are going to run really hard if we see a lot of inflation. Yes, and they tend to be. They're, hip, they're high capital intensive. They're the most capital intensive businesses out there. So the lesson that everybody's learned over the last 10 years is that you don't want to be in them. And Here we are. Like You can buy some of those like one, one and a half times EBITDA.
1: That's true. And you are in an ideal structure to do that type of investing in the ETF structure, where most individual investors, if they're in a taxable account, would have to pay taxes for every gain that they have. We're in the ETF structure. It's a unique way to do it. That's advantageous to deep value.
0: That's exactly right. That's one of the huge advantages of the ETF over a managed account or a mutual fund or a limited partnership that flow through, that lack of flow through taxable events is is a massive advantage. And it does mean that I can run the portfolios almost essentially exactly the way I want to do it, which is, you know, I used to work for, before I, was, before I started working for myself, I spent some time working for an activist investor. And his view was you just never, ever do anything that you never time a sale for tax purposes you know like if it's right near the end of the, if you're weeks away from the end of the year sure then push into the next year but it's like every single time you sort of wait for the long-term capital gains or anything like that like that's that's a recipe for disaster you can't be worried about those things if you're going to deal with the tax consequences you have to think about them beforehand you do the work before you put the position on and there are a variety of ways that he could control it by. Using trusts and other things like that, but that aren't available to to American investors in particular. But I think that that is the right approach unless it's like a unless we're talking weeks at the end of the year, every time I've held on, you know you get the big gain in the first few months and then you hold on and the gain's gone.
1: Yeah, and yeah, it seems like anytime you try to make a decision and taxes are the overriding reason, I definitely agree that that usually leads to mistakes and errors. like if something is overvalued, just get out of it.
0: <laughs> At the selling end, if you think about it beforehand, that's yeah. a different scenario. It's it's when you come to sell and that's the overriding consideration, that's a problem. But you should be thinking about the tax issues before you put the position on a thing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about the Greenbacked blog when you were doing the net nets. So for anyone not aware, Tobias ran a blog called Greenbacked back during the financial crisis and he went out and bought portfolios of net nets, did analysis on net nets that were out there in the market. So I was just wondering if you talk a little bit about those times and what you learned from it.
0: You know, I graduated from law in two thousand April 2000, I started working and I had gone in expecting to be doing venture capital type stuff because that was super hot. Everybody wanted to be in VC as a lawyer. I would, I'd be on the legal side. Markets just collapsed from that point. And All of the capital raisings and the deals just stopped. And these guys who had been corporate raiders from the 80s came back and they started harassing these companies that had, you know, this, this is, I was in Australia at this point, but they had raised money. They had a dumb idea and they were losing money. Like they were literally losing money on every single sale (laughs) and try to make it up on volume as the, as the joke goes. (laughs) And these guys would just come in and say and take these companies over. And I just saw it happen over and over again. And I was often acting for the company, not the, raider or activist as they subsequently were called. And I just couldn't figure out because I had that kind of Buffett mentality, wonderful companies at fair prices. That's what we're trying to buy here. And I'd look at these things and I just couldn't figure it out. And I did have this vague recollection that there had been this liquidation, these liquidation chapters in security analysis. And I went back and read them and I found that old, I think I cut it out and I put it on Greenback from the security analysis where they tell you how to do the breakdown of the, Graham tells you how to do the breakdown of the balance sheet to find a net net. And so I started looking at these things and I thought, oh, these things are really, these are actually net nets. Often these things are net cash because they've just raised money in an IPO. Then their business is terrible and these guys would get control, just shut down the business. And then they'd go and try and buy more of them or liquidate them or whatever the case may be. And so I thought that's kind of interesting because I thought this was something that disappeared in the 50s or the 30s or something like that. I didn't... I wasn't aware that people could still do this. And then I thought it's probably one of those things that only happens when there's a big crash. So I thought the next time there's a big crash, I'll make sure I'm in a position to invest in these things and to do something about it. So it took a long time. It took until 2007. During that period of time, I was working as a lawyer. And I had been in the States working in San Francisco and corporate advisory, mergers and acquisitions type transactions. And I was back in Australia working for a company that I had listed as a general I listed it as an external counsel, I had moved into their general counsel role. They were doing acquisitions and things like that. They eventually got bought out after being approached by this activist who had said, you know, you guys are paying a dividend and you're raising money. They had these good points that they were making. And so I approached them and I said, you could have made my job a lot harder if you had done certain things under the Corporations Act in Australia, why don't I can show you how to do those things and you teach me how to invest. But I didn't want to have any conflict because it was mostly it was focused on Australian stuff. I didn't want to have any conflict. So I thought I'll write about American stuff because my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was American. I knew we were coming back at some point. And I thought it'd be good just to have a written record of what I had been doing so I could show prospective employers that I had some understanding of you know, the differences like this US gap is distinct from IFRS, which is a different accounting system employed in the rest of the world, different implementations in each country. And net nets just, you know, I knew that net nets would be there. I started writing up the net nets. So I decided I like, you know, activism was interesting. I'm one of the ones that had an activist. So I wanted a 13D file. 13D is the note that says someone's going to do something active. They've got more than 5%. And I found that they write these great letters too. So it's like, it's really kind of exciting, interesting stuff. They say, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you should be doing. And so I started just putting them together. And that was basically greenback that I'd find something that was both a net net with a 13D file, understand the activist, what the activist was trying to do. And I had this idea that I had some experience. I'd been a lawyer. I'd written these things up. I could get a job in some activist firm in the States when we came back. And so that was really what I was doing it for. But it was a great learning experience because, you know, when I was saying earlier, it's three to five years for these things to work out. It's probably a little bit faster with activist positions and net net type positions, but the feat that the, Principle is still the same. You're still trying to buy something at big discount. The discount is the important thing. You've got an assessment of value. You're trying to find the big discount. And uh, I think it was that was for me, it was perfect training to kind of get to focus on the discount, focus on the valuation, focus on the catalyst to resolve it. I don't like catalysts so much anymore, but at, at the time I thought that was an essential part of the process. So that was that was greenbacked.
1: Yeah, and for a net-net, you definitely need an activist involved because a lot of times the management left with their own devices will just destroy and waste all the cash.
0: Statistically, you know, the research is, there's the Oppenheimer paper from like 84 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I did an update with a couple of guys where we went and looked at net-nets since 84, thinking there's just no way this has continued to work. Basically, the returns were identical in the subsequent period, and we found all the same things. So Oppenheimer finds that, looking inside the net nets, profitable net nets don't do as well as unprofitable net nets for the obvious reason that people will pay more for a profitable net net than they will for an unprofitable net net. And then from in the inside the profitable ones, the dividend payers don't do as well as the non-dividend payers. They're all of these, It's all sort of upside down and counterintuitive in deep value world. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write the books because I Because it is a very different kind of approach to people who are looking for wonderful companies at fair prices. Like They're much more focused on the business, whereas the deep value guys are much more focused on the balance sheet and how the value can be extracted from the business.
1: Yeah, so much of it is very counterintuitive. When I read the book, it challenged a lot of my assumptions about how that works. Like when you talk about basically the trashier, the better. Like it to- totally defies common sense and logic, but that that seems to be how it how it works.
0: I think that the same intuition applies when you move into the EV EBIT type investment or EV EBITDA. Uh, so this was another. There was this uh, that the business school was part of the social sciences, whatever the bigger faculty or whatever they call the whole kind of. I don't know how they divided up. They had this giant library, and the library was full of these very old periodicals that came in ring binder folders. I don't know if this is probably foreign to a lot of younger people, but they used to update the the journals. weren't searchable. Like the journals weren't searchable on, like the DVD. What do they call that? Multimedia. Remember when multimedia was going to be a thing?
1: Yeah, they had they had DVDs, and then they also had the microfiche, which that's was, right. That that's was right. the- Microfish was old.
0: <laughs> they still made us learn microfiche at the time, even though we kind of knew that it was old and multimedia was coming in. But the periodicals were the things that I liked yeah. to go and read because they weren't searchable. You just had to go and and I just would have like a break between a class and I'd go in and grab one of these periodicals and just look through and see if there was anything interesting in there. And I read I don't know how many of these, like thousands of them probably over the time that I was there. And I just remembered finding one that referred to this thing called the Aquiris Multiple, which was EV EBIT. Mm-hmm. At the time, sorry. And they were looking at all of the 80s raiders and how they'd used it to bust them up. And I knew that Buffett didn't like it, but these guys were using it. And I, I had eventually, there was some research that came out in about 2006, I think something like that, which had, there's a paper, and I forget his name now, but he had a, he'd written a paper that was, you know, there's always two papers, right? There's the paper that the researcher writes for themselves, and then there's the paper that eventually gets published. And the paper that gets published is always neutered you want the paper that comes beforehand where they're just a little bit more excited about their findings. (laughs) And so I read that first one and he was like, yeah, EBITDA just smokes everything else, every other metric. And I knew that, I don't know if Jim O'Shaughnessy had updated uh, What Works on Wall Street at that time. He was still using price to sales, I think. But then I think that that came out
1: 2012 was when he updated
0: that. That feels right. And then he updated it and he said... uh, I think he did an update where he said it's EV EBITDA uh, and then he did another, update. I might be getting this confused and he said, oh, you, I prefer a, a compound composite type model. But the EV EBITDA uh, was a uh, obviously one that worked very well. And it's it's the same intuition as a net net. You're trying to buy these things really, really cheap, knowing that businesses, it's not Microsoft, it's not recurring revenue, you know, little in little investment required to keep it going <laughs> and people are going to be using it forever because they just can't get off the... They can't get off the stand. That they're not great businesses. They tend to be more heavy in industrials and less good businesses. But if you get them at a big enough discount, you buy them at three times EBITDA, you buy them at two times EBITDA, or one times EBITDA. And sometimes you find these things. They've got way too much cash on the balance sheet. Um, so they're, they're they're not they're the business isn't much, but you, they're not paying much for the business. You're paying nothing for the business. You've got a negative price for the business. So a negative price for a for an okay business, not a great business. That's a good deal. And so that was sort of why I started using that. I knew that the metric was better. It definitely was something you could apply through the whole universe of stocks at all times, right? Net nets only work when the market crashes. That's not quite true. Net nets are more frequently available, but in sort of investable numbers, you needed to be waiting for a crash. Whereas EV EBITDA or EV EBIT, you can break the market down in deciles at any given point in time. And basically the cheapest stuff tends to do better than everything else. Like whether it's the quintile or the decile, that tends to be the most predictive metric of future returns. There are other metrics like quality and there are lots of other things that you can do, but it's still really only momentum and value are the the most robust factors over a very long period of data. And there there are hundreds of other factors that you can use, but none of them have ever. They're all much more recent. They haven't worked. They're not as well proven. And often I think it's something that, you know, quality, I like quality. I do use quality. Certain parts of it, I don't use the whole composite, but why would you be getting a better return for buying something that is a better company and everybody knows it's a better company. That just sort of doesn't really make sense in a handicapping type world. Whereas value is you gotta buy these things. It's either because you're getting compensated for risk or because uh, it's that it's that behavioral thing where it's gone down a lot. People don't want to hold it. They know like everybody can tell you what's wrong with the business. <laughs> There's no secret there.
1: Yeah, it is really funny how immediately as the price goes down a whole new narrative forms about the company. Like I remember 2019 Facebook is the best business in the world. Yeah.
0: Revolutionized
1: advertising. And now today it's, Oh, it's just a crap business. And it's, Mark Zuckerberg's lost his mind.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's that's a great example, and that is something that I have I've seen it happen so many times now that I just I can't I do kind of laugh at it a little bit. But Apple's another great example. Apple used to do this. I I think I call it Apple does this like migration from you know everybody loves Apple to this migration back to where it's or it used to do this migration back to deep value lands where you could buy it. And I, I think I wrote about it in 2013. We did it when we wrote quantitative value. We did this had to pick a stock to write up and. Apple was one of the cheapest 10% of large capitalization stocks at the time. And it was obviously, it's a very high quality business at that time. Got expensive again. And then in 2016, it got cheap again. And that was when Einhorn and Icahn both went in and said, send some capital back. And they were like, no, we're a high growth business. We can't send capital back. And Einhorn had that great line where he says, you know, doesn't the fact that you've piled up all the cash on the balance sheet sort of show that you're having trouble reinvesting this at high rates of growth? Like, doesn't that tell you that you should be sending this back? Mm -hmm. And eventually, they didn't like... Einhorn's iPref's idea. Remember he was going to issue preference shares. It was just too complicated. ICANN was just like just buy back a whole lot of stock, which they ended up doing, which they've continued to do. And that's part of the reason why the business has been so, the company, the stock has been so explosive and that's the other reason why Buffett's in there because they're they're in that capital return. I find the narrative shift over, it takes a few years, takes three years, but Meta's another example, like Zuckerberg's a god at one point and then he's a complete donkey and like there's three years have gone past. It hasn't changed that much. He wasn't a god and he's not a donkey.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I also remember back when Buffett bought it in 2016 or so. At that time. I remember watching CNBC and I remember people saying, Well, I don't know what he's thinking, moving in the technology, not really his core competency. It's a hardware company. He doesn't really understand. Meanwhile, it's been one of the best investments of all time. That <laughs> I, one made. of the
0: the great like the there's the book The Greatest Trade of All Time, which is about no, I'm not gonna I'm s I am not going to i want to say Hussman. Hussman's not right. I can't believe I can't even remember his name. Where well, it was the big short basically. Just telling John... No, 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 John, John, uh, oh, I can't remember. Can't believe I can't remember. It was the big short. The guy who put on the big short for oh, Michael Burry. No, is, Burry's in. Burry's this. Burry's like. I think Burry kind of figured it out, but these other guys got it on in size. They got like oh. a billion dollars into the trade. He'd formerly been a an arbitrager. Like I a know who you're talking about.
1: I know who you're talking about. I forget. I can't his name believe too. I can't remember.
0: <laughs> Getting old, but the you know they got like a billion dollars into it. And then any other any other big trade that you think about? Soros is a good example. Like they've all been able to get small amounts of money in. Buffett put forty billion dollars to work in Apple, which at the time was like one of the biggest companies in the world. And every single person basically has some Apple product, or they know about Apple. They've, they've seen the iPod, they've seen the the computers that they first brought out, the colorful computers. Mm-hmm. They've got a they've got an iPhone. They've got an iPad, like everybody is aware of this thing. It's like, it's ubiquitous. Everybody knows about it. It's the biggest company in the world. Buffett puts $40 billion to work in it. And inside 18 months, he's like three or four X that position. Like you have to give that that's the greatest trade ever. And I don't think that'll, not ever, ever is a long time, but it'll be a long time before anybody has anything that approaches a trade on that scale in that short period of time where the return is that big, having put that much money to work. That's why I think it's the greatest trade because you've got to put a gigantic amount of money to work. You've also got to make it a big chunk of your own personal portfolio. And it was like 40% of their of their investment capital at the time. And then an enormous return, it subsequently, went like, hats off to him, greatest trade ever.
1: Yeah, he's the man. I mean, it's funny because when you look through Buffett's history, I think most investors would have tapped out at certain points where he was very successful and he figures out, okay, at this basis capital in this market environment, he's able to brilliantly just figure out a way to adapt to it.
0: He's on. adaptable. That's that's a great word. And he's, I, I think that there are these fads that come through, these business fads that lead to booms, and he doesn't really participate in the fad. You know, he doesn't participate in the boom, but the moment that it all collapses, he goes through and he just hoovers up the best of whatever was in that boom. Like he clearly recognizes, yeah, these are really great businesses. I'm just not going to pay this price for this business. It's just not de risked at this price. And then the collapse comes, it's all de risked. He goes through and he picks the eyes out of it. So, yeah, that's, I think that I've heard about Buffett that. Yeah, you know, and I think most people take the, the approach that I did too, where if you hear he's the richest man in the world, then you read his letters and you're like, this makes sense. Buffett's my favorite investor. And then you discover all these other people who are doing something a little bit more sophisticated or a little bit more intricate or a little bit something else. And you think, oh no, no these are the other guys. And then gradually you come back to Buffett because he's just doing this one sort of simple thing and just smashing it out of the park over and over and over again, even though he is slightly adapting to the market. That's why he's the greatest ever and probably will remain so. Yeah,
1: I don't think we'll ever have another Warren Buffett. And I think the magazine covers is this first and the next Buffett is really always always going to be the kiss of death.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) just to go back to what I first said, you know, I do think it's more than intellect. You know, clearly he's he's a very, very intelligent man and he's wholly focused on this one thing. So that's another big advantage. He finds it endlessly interesting. Dad was a stockbroker, so he's been in it for a long time. That's that's all that's a big leg up. But the thing really is that he just hasn't made any gigantic mistakes. He hasn't. Ma- he's made lots of mistakes. Like yeah, IBM was a mistake. But you know, chart. Look at when he bought IBM to now. Like he's the rest of his portfolio has performed so well that it doesn't matter that IBM was a mistake. That's to me. That's really the sign that somebody is doing something special when ostensibly they shouldn't be able to do the thing that they're doing because they. You know, I often say Kanye West like can't rap. Kanye West, one of the world's <laughs> great rappers, right? Right. So he's just figured out a way to put everything else together, and Buffett's that way too. Like, even though he is very good at these things, even if he wasn't very good at that, there's so much else going behind to make it continue to work. You know, just the fact that he figured out the insurance with the float gave him that 1.7 times leverage on. Yeah, so maybe his returns are only in line with the S and P 500 when you take that 1.7 away. But he's got the 1.7 there, so he's gone up 1.7 times faster than the S and P 500, which has done 12%. So that's how you get close to 20%. It's impressive. Like every single part of it works. So if one part of it doesn't work, it still works.
1: Yeah, and it absolutely—that's absolutely right. And I mean, that's true for any portfolio. I mean, there's going to be duds. No one can hit every time and hit a home run on every single investment. And even IBM wasn't that terrible. Like I think he was down twenty percent or something. Everybody acts like he—he
0: blew it up. He (laughs) invested in Kodak and wrote it to zero. (laughs) Like it's not not. Yeah, it just that didn't, didn't go up 10 times, didn't go up five times. It was just, and it was a tough thing. Like, but I think that's also speaks to the, it's a process rather than an outcome type thing. You have to be confident with your process. You have to know that if I go through, I'm going to find it has to have these criteria. Even then that won't be enough. But if you collect enough of these things on average, on balance, it'll work out. That's kind of the, that's the approach that I'd take. I take. I don't worry too much about what any individual name does because I think that on balance, the portfolio will work by virtue of the fact that it cues pretty closely to value and to other quality metrics that I think are important for value cash flows and buybacks and stuff like that.
1: That's a good transition. Let's talk about your ETF a little bit. So you were talking about net nets. It was more pure value. I get the impression that you've gravitated a little bit more towards quality and zig. So did you want to talk a little bit about that transition?
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons is, it's good that we're connecting to this discussion about Buffett. I just want as many different ways to win as I possibly can built into the portfolio. So the way that I think about it, I did, I have sort of two, two valuations. One is I just want it to be, I want it to be cheap on a multiple basis. I want to pay as little as I possibly can for the cash flows and for the EBIT, for the business. And I think that for the most part, you're going to get multiple expansion in undervalued stuff because you're just paying so little for it. The prospects are so bad that if it continues to work, it's still going to be okay. So that's one thing that I'm trying to do. At exactly the same time, I'm trying to do this other valuation where I'm saying, well, what if the multiple doesn't change? What if this is a static multiple going forward? I also want to be able to succeed if there's no multiple contraction or expansion over the period of time. So that's a little bit more of an investor's approach where you're looking at, is it buying back stock? Does it have good cash flows? Are they able to redeploy that at a reasonable rate? I'm not saying that I need a better than average return on invested capital to do it because if you're buying at a cheap enough price, a bad return on invested capital will still give you at a big discount. You'll get that. You do get a good return on your your purchase of that invested capital. And I know that over a period of time, your own investment approaches the return on invested capital of the portfolio, your own personal performance approach is the return on invested capital of the portfolio, but I'm not probably going to be holding for that long. My holding periods tend to be three to five years. That's kind of the length of time that I'm thinking. And then often it's closed up faster than that and I can find something else in the interim. So that's basically the, the approach is those two things, absolutely cheap, absolutely on a low multiple. But then if the multiple doesn't contract, if it doesn't expand, I keep on saying contract, if the multiple doesn't expand, then it should still work out because of just the mechanics of buying back stock. And sometimes that happens. That happened, it's happened in quite a few of the positions that I have in the portfolio. And that, you know, they're the kind of things that they're they're very good at buying back stock. So HPQ is one, AZO is another. Those kind of stocks where they're just very or O'Reilly, all of those kind of companies where you're not relying so much on the market wising up to what's happening. If anything, you know, they stay cheaper for longer. That's better because that allows management to keep on buying back stocks. So now I've become sort of agnostic to what the market thinks about the stock too. I just want to, I buy them absolutely cheap as a risk kind of protection. And then I buy them so that the management team and the business can mechanically get us where we need to go just by buying back stock. And it doesn't matter then if it stays cheap because we there are fewer shares outstanding. For a similar size business, and so it should be, it should do well over time. So that's when I, I I use quality as kind of shorthand for that aspect of it, but it means that it has to have some cash flow that they can redeploy into buybacks, basically.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know that those uh, those cannibals, those companies that just aggressively buy back stock, like O'Reilly, is a pretty good that's example that. of that, where they're extremely aggressive with that. And right. I think a lot of investors think that just works. In the near term, like they're going to buy back stock, I'm going to make X percent. But when you look at the charts and the buyback activity of those, I notice it comes in spurts. It's like they'll buy back a ton of stock over a three-year period. The stock does nothing. And then all of a sudden, it just explodes because the basics of supply and demand of the shares. So yeah, it's 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 interesting how that happens.
0: That's a good strategy all by itself. If you just buy companies that are buying back material amounts of stocks, so the material is the important part because- right there's buybacks going on all the time in expensive companies. It has to be enough to sort of move the needle in terms of reducing the share count. And I I like to go and look at these companies that have bought back stock. And you can see the business is shrinking, but the share count's shrinking faster and they're throwing off cash often. They're kind of, they're more mature businesses that they don't really need. Like Home Depot is a great example at the moment of a business that's out there that they haven't really expanded the units that they have out there. They've got 2,200, which they've had for a long, long time. And there's nothing particularly special about that business. It's not that moaty, although I wouldn't want to like built out from scratch to compete with them that would be an expensive thing to do but it's one of those businesses that it'll probably throw off lots of stock they'll be pretty good repurchases sorry throw off lots of cash they'll be pretty good repurchases and at some point it's it's cheap enough where it doesn't matter i don't actually hold home depot i should say i just it's just it's in my screens it's around i'm thinking about it a little bit
1: yeah that's that's a good example of a lot of shareholder yield and yeah when you find those business like it, i agree with you it needs to be material it can't be like basically something where they're just throwing a bone to the shareholders or just you,
0: cleaning up spc that's a shocker
1: yeah yeah that's that's true that's that's an issue for the tech companies that's for sure but yeah when they buy back material amounts it's it's amazing how that works i think um, dillard is, is an example of that yeah. <laughs> ted, ted weschler he uh did well in that position
0: amazing that he continued buying it for six or seven years with it going nowhere essentially maybe it was down even like this is the to, it speaks to, when I saw that actually, I thought, well, I'm I'm probably a little bit too impatient with some of these things because I think that every time I've not made money in something, I thought I should just be, because I sold out eventually, I, I've always just kicked myself for not being patient enough. So now I'm just, I'm going to be the other way. I'll just hold it until the end of time, basically. Weschler held it for six or seven years and probably was <laughs> down in the position. And then over a period of a year or so, he got a couple of hundred percent out of it so that he's holding his CAGR over the whole thing was like 30% per year but didn't look that way for the first 6 or 7 years. It's a good lesson. That's why he's in there with the gut.
1: Yeah, that's a patient man. That's a patient man. And then didn't he do something crazy with his uh with his IRA? It's worth like 100 million or some, some absurd amount I of money. I think it's bigger than
0: that. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> he's contributed Whatever it, the the maximum material had to contribute but then it's also he's he's run it up into 400 billion or something like that
1: and i, I think the amount he put into it was something like seventy thousand dollars yeah it's pretty fast <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty amazing no wonder uh he got the but job it does,
0: buffett it does speak to I've done this you know a lot of back testing because i like to do back testing to see you know a, a lot of ideas don't hold up in back tests like it's just And I don't know, that doesn't necessarily kill the idea, but there's a lot of logic that is obvious to everybody else. And this is still sort of a handicapping event. It doesn't, you're not paid to have the same idea as everybody else at the same time. And the number of times that I've done that, a while ago when Burry was sort of quieter, but after everybody knew who he was, they said uh, one of those things came out that says Burry's buying farmland because he wants the water rights. And I knew that there was this really thinly traded stock called JG Boswell, which owned a whole lot of cotton farms in the US and Australia and had the water rights crucially. And I thought, oh, nobody will know about this. I'll go and buy this thing. And of course, the day that article came up, came out, it was up like two or 300% because it's very thinly traded. But I was like, how about that? Like just everybody else in the world had exactly the same thought process that I did (laughs) reading the. So you got to, you got to be. That's why sometimes when I buy something and people are like, it's not going to work out, it's terrible. I'm like, well, this is okay, this is now this is interesting because now this is something that I might have found all by myself. But I, I did this study. So I like to back test to, to see that if there's if the idea does actually work when you run it for or well, you know backwards. But I'm assuming that I don't really know what happens before I test these things. And often the the holding periods are like one year. That's just most backtesting set- systems are set up to hold for a year. So I fiddled with my own so that it would not sell and it would just basically buy for as far back as I have the data. And that was kind of an interesting process because I, I tested lots and lots of different ideas. So I was testing higher quality ideas. Honestly, like, is it true that if you buy these compounders and you just hold them forever, do you get these high compound returns? And the answer is that after you go beyond five years, basically nothing is predictive. But the only thing that is predictive sort of up to five years is value. So if you're buying cheap cash flows, and I looked in those portfolios and the portfolios would own you know, names that you wouldn't think are really great businesses at the outset. But for whatever reason, management figures something out or something happens, it's unexpected by the market. You know, That's kind of the idea that if, if the market knew it was going to happen, they'd have bid it up and you wouldn't get those returns. So it's definitionally unexpected by the market. And these things the portfolios become quite strange because the portfolios end up containing the things that have worked the best and they tend to be quite sized up. They become like 10, 15, 20% positions out of a portfolio that might be 20 or 30 names. So they start out at like five or or even bigger portfolios and they're very small positions initially. It's just that the things that don't work just vanish they just disappeared. They dwindled down to nothing. And the things that do work become very, very big. And so at every single stage, you look at these portfolios and it's as if you are this high quality concentrated investor who's like Kelly bet into these things at the point of, you know, so 15 years later, people are looking at, they're like, wow, this guy's like 20% of the portfolios in Microsoft or whatever the case may be, or these conglomerates that have been unusually good performers. And it's just because you bought them cheap and didn't sell them and didn't like, rebalance anything else. The other interesting thing that happens with these portfolios that I have found is that they return about a third of their capital in the first five years, which is kind of extraordinary. But if you're buying cheap on a cash flow or cheap on a free cash flow basis, they're throwing off a lot of cash relative to what you paid for them. And they either get bought out because somebody is thinking financially about acquiring them, or they just buy back so much stock or they have special dividends or spinoffs. It's this It is a strategy that you could implement as a in a holding company type scenario because you buy these things and they return so much cash that you do have to redeploy. And if you're just thinking in those terms, we're just going to keep on redeploying and not selling, which is basically what Buffett's doing. He's doing a little bit more he's got a better shot selection than I do. I'm having more of a like shotgun approach to these things, just buying what is cheap. But you do end up with these portfolios that look like you're quite a kind of Kelly betting quality investor, even though that's not the that's not the way they start out. They're just like plain old deep value, but see what survives and just ride them until kingdom come. You know?
1: Yeah. Apple's a good example of that. I mean, that yes. was a uh, net net in 2000, I think. And everybody yeah. thought it was over. Why is anyone investing in this? And
0: it turns out it wasn't a net net. So I think I wrote in one of the books that it was because <laughs> there's been so many share splits that it's just impossible to kind of figure out. But I think I said it was at seven. And it turns out it, like it didn't quite, they had $7 in assets and it might have been, or, or net current assets and it might, I I had figured that, that the stock was a discount to that, but it was close. It was like nine dollars with seven dollars in cash or something like that. It was close enough that you're getting Apple for free, basically. You know, it was crazy as that sounds.
1: Yeah, and it was even if it wasn't a net net. I mean, I remember it was. Depressed. It was close. Like yeah, um, very much so. They were out of cash. I think if they Steve Jobs didn't arrive within a year or two, they would have run out of cash and would have yeah. gone under. Yeah. And I remember the reputation of it. It was just like the reputation was Apple products. Oh, they're crap. Why is anyone bothering with that? <laughs> that's
0: funny, isn't it? It's crazy how, I mean, that's quite a long period of time. And Jobs clearly a special sort of businessman. But the sentiment changed in that over the, the number of times the sentiment has changed in that, like that alone should tell you all that you need to know about investing. Like You just buy them when they're when everybody hates them. And uh, knowing that they're not as bad as everybody thinks, but probably not as good as everybody thinks at the peak either. That's the other thing you got to remember. They're not geniuses at the peak and they're not idiots at the bottom. The truth is somewhere in between.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Microsoft's a good example of that too. You know, it's the greatest company in the world in 2000. They triple their revenues over the next 10 years, but it doesn't matter because the price was so absurdly high. And now everybody thinks it's by 2010, everybody's like, oh, Microsoft, they're going to go out of business. They're going to get replaced by Google Sheets or something.
0: And they had Steve Barmer, a CEO. Yeah. And they had their first year of revenue uh not growing. I think they had the first year of revenue dropping between like 2010, 2011. I remember it being pitched all the value investing conferences around about that time, like Whitney Tilson was pitching it and a few other guys were pitching it. And I was just kind of like, uh, it's not that interesting because it's so big and everybody knows about it. And yeah, so it stumbled like it's just how silly. If I'd bought that, I'd be on a different podcast. I'd be on the compound quality. <laughs> It's a tech tech podcast talking about what a great insight I'd had into Microsoft.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it is funny how how those how that works out. Something else I wanted to ask you about. So with uh, concentrated investing, so I love that book. I love stories in that book. I think my two favorites are Keynes and Lou Simpson.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was
1: curious who's your favorite investor in that book.
0: Yeah. So I, I like quite a few of them. So Christian CM, I think, is an interesting guy. Just because he's done it in oil and gas. Like that's a really tough place to be because it's so cyclical. You really have to be, you know, he talks about he likes to buy them when they're he buys the assets when they're distressed. He buys them when they're losing money. Because he can get them cheap enough then. And then when they start making money. I don't think he's sold much, but I think he tends to be more of a trader. I don't know if he's my favorite. I don't know. Keynes was an interesting one because Keynes has had Keynes was like this macro guy who was fated as a sort of macro genius because he'd made some observations about, you know, being too strict with Weimar Germany and creating the inflation. And then he had clearly he was right about that, whereas the rest of the world was well, lots of other people were wrong. And so he sort of had this idea that he could outsmart everybody else. But just like that example I gave before, it just turns out everybody I think basically thinks exactly the same way at the same time. <laughs> and He just he blew himself up twice and got bailed out by his dad, and finally he turned into this Buffett-style, highly concentrated investor. Where he'd think about he was still sort of a little bit more top-down macro than than many of us would be, but he would be like, which you know he'd he'd work out which car company you know, what are you paying per car that they produce and other things like that. That's how he was thinking. So was basically a bottom-up investor he'd sort of get there from a slightly macro top-down investment approach. So Keynes was a surprise, I have to say, when I when I read that that he and he had he has some Keynes writes beautifully. Like that's the thing I love about Keynes. That the general theory, even though I think it's complete bullshit, I do love the way he writes and he's eminently quotable. And I love the comments that he makes too when he was managing these insurance companies and these endowments right at the bottom in Twenty nine, and these people are like, you know, you have to get out of these, you have to get out of these businesses, you have to get out of these stocks because they're they're going to zero. And he says, if they go to zero, then it doesn't matter. But if we pull out now, um, we miss all the possibility of recovering what we've what we've lost. And so ultimately, he won out in one, and the other one they just forced him to shut it down. And so the one that shut down, obviously, it didn't recover, but the other one did recover and go, and it went on to return. He, He had wide out performance and good sort of absolute returns over that period I also i love i like lou simpson too because i just think he's so in he's very much buffett like in the sense that he's just so straightforward and simple he's going to put on he's going to have 10 positions he's not going to tinker with them much although he does trim and add when they get a little bit ahead or behind which everything does but he's basically in you know nike that's Nike. He could have been riding Nike today. It's still working. All of these things that he was in would still be working now. Just so simple. I kind of admire that. We're not going to do any options. We're not going to do anything else. We're just going to do this ten simple stocks, my ten favorite stocks, and trade around them a little bit, and then put up silly numbers. Like that's the that's really when you that's that's very Buffett. That's very Ted and Todd. Those kind of guys. I think they're all very like that just take a handful of positions not really worry what everybody else says it's not the most glamorous thing out there but it'll work it's solid it, it won't blow you up you know that's that's the most important part
1: yeah absolutely and I'm I was I think Lou Simpson actually outperformed Buffett. When he was running Geico, in one of the letters, I remember Buffett posted his returns and said, I didn't post these out of embarrassment. And then he posted all of Lou Simpson's returns and they were they were extraordinary. And Nike was a huge driver of that. I think that's Buffett's greatest sin of omission because it's a pure Buffett stock and he could have talked to Lou Simpson and could have they had They definitely it discussed the
0: it. There's some record of them discussing it where he says something like, which, uh, I, I think I can't remember what he was talking about. It could have been Coke. And he said, mm-hmm. which one has the best... Most. And Simpson says, "Oh, it's it's Nike for these reasons." And Buffett thought it was Coke. I don't know, but that uh, there's definitely a, there's some exchange recorded that they had about those about those things. You know, there's an element of luck in there too. And I think you also have to say we all think about Buffett as if he's as if he's an investor, but really what he is is he's an industrialist who owns this. The controlling share in a company that's got lots of other things going on in it, and he's got the cash flows all the time that he's redeploying. So he's got a slightly different mandate to the one that Simpson had. I think it's I, to Buffett's credit, he's never said, hey, I'm, "I'm not, I'm not just a pure investor. I'm, I'm doing these other things too." But he's always thought about as if he's just a he's just an investor. So I, th- I think he's sort of the cleverness of Buffett is he's kind of hidden in plain sight a little bit. Like he's he's doing something extraordinary and telling everybody else what it is all the time, but he can't really penetrate to figure out exactly what's going on there. There's there's a hidden dimension to what's happening.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's so many operating companies now within Berkshire. I mean, it used to be more of they're heavier into the marketable securities. And now it's definitely, I think he's more of a business operator than he is a security analyst.
0: You know, the, it, the funniest thing is to see how he used to break out individual companies and individual business. And as they've sort of gone along, they've, it's just got too big. So they've just, you they're now broken out and they cut little, like the, this is our energy portfolio and this is our miscellaneous portfolio. And it's got a whole lot of stuff that used to be front and center, but now it's just, it's it's all too big. Like it just has to be put together into one so that he can write a reasonably short letter
1: yeah I noticed that there used to always be this section where he'd have the biggest marketable securities that'd be like American Express Gillette, blah
0: blah 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 blah
1: and uh yeah i've I've noticed that i can't that. track
0: it where'd anymore where
1: where to go <laughs> that's the section I usually just zoom right to to see what
0: what he's up to. Let me ask you some questions while I'm here. You've had an evolution since we've known each other. I think you were you were more i think probably similar to mine, but you were more. Strict deep value, and I would say you've now become. You look at better quality businesses too, not quite as quantitative as I am. More of a deep dive, and I, I think I've, I, I follow your portfolio. I, I tend to agree with everything that you put in there. I like the portfolio, but what what was the? How did that process come about? And what was the? Yeah, what was the impetus? And, and what what has been the change?
1: For me, it started where I looked data and I saw that deep value is the way to go. So my attitude was, why would I even look at quality? I'm just going to buy the cheapest things imaginable and do that. Then I found when I was actually doing it in a practical way, and I was actually buying these stocks, I found them difficult to hold. And then I went through a period of time where I really tried to predict macro because a lot of these positions were dependent upon the macro situation. And I finally accepted after many bruises that I have absolutely zero talent for predicting macro. I really wanted to have an approach where I could buy value, but be able to hold it confidently through yeah. a market problem, through major recession. I wanted things that I could, where I could actually stick to the plan. So for me, I gravitated more towards quality and moats, but a lot of that is about risk mitigation. More than returns. Like yeah. a lot of people talk about it in terms of like, oh, I want this big reinvestment runway with a moat. For me, it's more. I want them I understand that value is going to be the bigger source of the return, and yield will be a bigger source of return. But I need the moat to be able to actually hold on for that run. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I, that's. I think I'm mean, I think we're pretty close to in our in our investment approaches because I I agree with that. It's not so much a return thing as it is a risk. As a risk thing, I, I think I tend to buy a little bit deeper value, a little bit lower quality. But I, I I think of myself as like a value buyer, but a quality holder. I'd be prepared to hold it, and because you can't, I do buy some of the commodity companies, and if they get cheap, and if I will buy them. But there is always you are sort of relying on that. Will the copper price hold together? Will the oil price hold together? Will something like that hold together? And the answer is often no. It won't. It was cheap for a reason.
1: I mean, energy is a great example of that right now, because I mean, I I think if you're going to be in energy, you need some kind of view on what's going to happen with the oil price. Well, like I could just as easily imagine that causes a horrible recession. Oil prices collapse, some deflationary spiral. I could also see a scenario where inflation rages out of control and oil keeps going up with it. And I mean, who knows? So if you hold an oil company, you need to You need to be able to confidently say like, well, I think the cycle
0: is going to go in this direction. I think you've captured the possibilities. That's exactly what's going to happen. It's one of those two things. (laughs) That's easy.
1: Yeah. It's not going to be, oh, energy muddles along and gives this return. It's going to be boom or bust. And And it's one thing I think, I do think there's some moments when you can get into a cyclical situation and know this is pretty close to the bottom, like oil going negative was probably like a giant. Red uh, green signal here, come on in, but now I mean now it's it's a lot more complicated you you don't have that kind of uh you know destruction and confidence over the asset, so it's hard to say it could go on. I mean back in two thousand four, for instance, you could have you could have said, well oil has peaked here, but we had a few more years of a major upswing, same thing could happen again we could be in some secular thing, but who knows.
0: I've lived through many $100 oil and round trip back to whatever it went back to $20 or $50 or whatever. I think I had this uh, econometrics professor at university who said, best guess for the price of a commodity in 12 months is where it's currently trading. And I thought to myself at the time, that's there's no way in the world that that's right. And then I realized that what he was saying was, the reason that's the best guess is because the range is wide, but it's, it's as wide up as it is down. Mm-hmm. And so- all you're doing is you just you're not taking it you're just not picking a direction. The only time where that doesn't apply is when it reaches a new peak or a new low, in which case mean reversion is the best guess. In those scenarios, it's kind of interesting. I, it's one of the things I like about commodities. How, what you do with that information is you, know, you don't you could just say well that makes it too hard to invest, or you could say well maybe I can maybe I've got a little bit of an edge there just by virtue of the fact that I'm mostly agnostic and I I'm, I think it's going to be. Provided that, what if, if one of those scenarios happens, as you say, inflationary spiral or deflationary spiral? If one of those two things happen, it's still going to be okay. Then I tend to put those positions on.
1: There you go. Yeah. And like, I definitely think that the time to sell the red light is when people start talking about peak oil again. So that's like... right. That's right.
0: It's <laughs> like coming. I'm, yeah. It's like, coming.
1: It's true. I mean, there's only so much oil left in the planet. But yeah, I remember in 07. It was like everywhere you went, every Economist article you read, it was all about how peak oil was here and get used to it. And everybody was bullish about oil. And then for a period of time, it looked like it was right. Like I remember gas in '08 went from like two fifty dollars or something at the beginning of the year. By the summer, it's $4. And then by the end of the year, it was $1 <laughs> after the financial crisis. But for a period of time, it oh, looked like – that peak oil thesis was was intact. And then all the commodity producing countries, like if you want to go international, like Russia was at a wild chiller pee back then because of this thesis. It didn't work out.
0: Like it's a compelling thesis that there is a finite amount of oil in the world. I don't want to think about what it takes to make oil. It's like you have to have an ocean with a whole lot of animals falling to the bottom dead over eons or millions of years or something like that. And then that has to get buried deep underground and captured there. And then we drill down and pull it out. That's just not sustainable. That's not going to work forever. We've only really been pulling it out of the ground for a little bit over 100 years. You know, it used to be whale oil before then. We've only had it for a very short period of time. And it's ubiquitous in the economy. It goes into plastic and it goes into energy and all of these other things. I don't know what we do when we run out. Like that's a genuinely scary thought. If you look at historically, ancient civilizations have had many, many collapses for Similar reasons, you know, that there was a Bronze Age collapse in the Mediterranean when the Sea People, who that's what the Egyptians called the people who just blew across the Mediterranean Sea. There were only to make bronze, you need tin. There were only two tin mines. They couldn't get tin. It plunged them into a uh, little Dark Age that lasted three hundred years, and they forgot how to make bronze. So. Wow. The, so that makes me a little bit nervous. Like those things do happen. We've got all of our stuff written down on computers. You get a little electromagnetic pulse. All the stuff goes down in the computers. There'll be no record of this civilization other than a thin, colorful layer of, you know, plastic in the in the sediment when the next civilization drills down to have a look.
1: Yeah, that's a bizarre thing. The electromagnetic pulses. Like there is a phenomenon where the sun can release these electromagnetic pulses. And I think there was one in like 1850 or something, and it took out all of the electrical equipment on earth at the time. And well, there, wasn't there, much. Wasn't, there wasn't much. So it wasn't a big, some telegraph operators couldn't send some uh, some SOS signals or whatever. And, but today, I mean, that would cripple our civilization.
0: Well, that's why COVID was so unfair because it hit the people who were, the people who had to go out and actually do the work were the ones who were affected by it. Whereas the people like you and I who can sit at home and work over computers were basically unaffected. Like that's a very, very unfair thing. But the equalizer would be an EMP, something like that.
1: Yeah, or a cyber attack. That's another cyber possibility. Attack. Like I, I feel see... like they're a
0: little bit more localized, though, aren't they? Or do you think they could be more ubiquitous? Someone just comes up with a worm that goes through everybody, every computer.
1: Well, if a, state a actor, sucks, if a state actor did it, like China, like if we yeah. if we actually went to war with China, I'm sure that China has cyber warfare plans in place that they could probably deploy if, if we ever... You know, they attack Taiwan, their response could be something like, well, you come to their defense, we will cripple your entire civilization. So...
0: Yeah, that's a scary thought.
1: <laughs> they're certainly collecting enough data on all over the country to do something like that. I mean, it's not just the cell phone data that they're collecting over TikTok and that that sort of thing, but they also place key people in different companies all over the country. So we have no idea. Like, there could be Chinese assets all over the place that could do some
0: harm. And uh, you know, I, I'm an aficionado of the art of war. And that's that's a big. Aspect of the art of war, shatter your enemy before you begin the fight. You should already know how you're going to win. So I'm sure that they're familiar with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, th- these spy balloons, that might be a part of it. It might, like, I doubt it was just taking pictures. It was probably tapping into cell networks and radio networks, seeing what contingencies we have in place to deal with different things. So I
0: think the funniest thing to come out is that a, there's some hobby group that had their weather balloon <laughs> shot down. I haven't heard from their weather balloon in two weeks or something. Hilarious. Yeah, I,
1: I saw that. That was pretty funny. That was pretty. I, I guess we overreacted at some point where we were just shooting down
0: anything that looked
1: odd. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and Hilarious. who knows how long that's been going on? Like, we just detected it. It could have, been, yeah. could have been doing that for a decade, collecting all kinds of information. And you're right, that's in the Art of War. The whole point of the Art of War, I mean, summarized is win before you fight. Like Run. Know that you're going to win this confrontation whenever it happens, so...
0: It was also the. There's a book called Skunk Works, which is about the development of all the spy planes in the states, and that was during this when the Cold War was going on in the Soviet Union. Before they even had electronic cameras, they had to drop the, This was dropping canisters of film, but they had these the spy planes that could travel so high that the MiGs couldn't reach them. But they used to fly up, sort of vertically hoping that the momentum would carry them up so they could try and crash into these planes, but they were just flying so high that they couldn't, for whatever reason, they couldn't get up that high. So I just thought it's a sad thing when someone else has figured out a technology that's too high for us to shoot down.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is sad. Like we, Even though it was a balloon. (laughs) Used to be us. Yeah. And then, I mean, the the ultimate example of that Blackbird, which basically was so fast that nothing could catch it. That was its evasive maneuver was go
0: faster. Have you read that Skunkworks book? That that's it that's also from the Skunkworks.
1: I got to check it out again. I read it a long time ago. I read it a long time ago.
0: But yeah, it was That was super the, that was the next one that came after that whatever the first sort of spy plane was that went super super high that that the, the bomber was the the blackbird was the next one and its trick was it just went so fast. Yeah. Good stock,
1: Lockheed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you own that in Zig, right?
0: I did. I I bought it pre Ukrainian invasion, not knowing that that was going to happen, thinking that you could get sort of mid teens over an extended period of time. And it was probably pretty low risk because no president had ever reduced military spend. But then it was never going to be a very big returner either because you got one customer basically. So they want their defense industry healthy, but they don't also want them making, you know, windfall profits all the time. And then Ukraine invaded and and it ran it ran all the way up. And I think I sold it in, in like a quarter or two later just because it, it bounced so, so quickly. And I thought, well, there's my, I've got my 13 or 14% over three to five years, that I estimated to just happen in sort of six months. And that doesn't happen very often to <laughs> deep value guys. So you got to take them when you get them. That's true.
1: Yeah. It is. I had, I had general dynamics, which was a similar situation. And I didn't expect that to, I didn't, basically, the, my thesis was we were going to build more submarines. And then it yeah. went up because the pandemic eased. So, Private jets started selling hot again, and then there was the war in Ukraine. So it did. Investing's it did easy. okay. <laughs> Investing's really easy. I, I
0: mean, I had the same thing. I bought the home builders uh, a few a year or so ago, um, basically when lumber was really, really expensive. So the inputs really, really expensive. So that the manufacturer becomes cheap because it's an input for them, and then lumber's come down and they've gone up. But now it's like now there's a now there's two things going on. There aren't enough houses out there. There's not enough inventory, but there's also this housing crash potentially going on at the same time. So I have no idea which way they're going from here. And they're not cheap anymore, but that's the business, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's a lot like the energy debate. So yeah. I mean, what what's going to happen with housing? Like on this other on one hand, you have this housing shortage, there's all this like NIMBYism where people won't let anything get built, and you have this problem with inventory, and then on the other hand, you have interest rates that are getting jacked up, and no one wants to buy a home. so where does that who wins? I, I have no idea. I could see it crashing. I could see it doubling.
0: even in the micro, you need to think a little bit about the macro. That's what I yeah. have found. or maybe at least to find a way to invest where it doesn't really matter what happens in the macro. That's probably the that's probably the real secret.
1: Well, yeah, and that's that's the way I've thought about it. It's like find a company where through a couple macro cycles, it's going to do okay, and you don't exactly have to be positioned correctly. Yeah. In. You could try try to get get it right, but the idea that you're going to bottom ticket and top ticket is like, I think it's impossible.
0: It is amazing how often I go to look at a company and I find that the reason that it's, it's doing well or badly is they've passed some new regulation that, that's hurt it. And I don't know whether the regulation will be unwound at some point or not. There's political yeah. risk and macro risk in just about everything sort of – it's not quite as bottoms up as Buffett likes to paint it.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I mean sometimes those regulations can absolutely help. There's situations where a government regulation can help a company and, and secure a moat, and there's situations where the government can tear a moat apart. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely tough. But I mean Buffett can find situations like Coca-Cola, you know, no matter what's going to happen – People are going to purchase Coca-Cola. He saw the opportunity to grow and in the emerging markets and that type of thing. And even with Apple, I mean, no matter what, I mean, aside from like a cyber attack or an electromagnetic pulse from the sun, have to like, re-buy a whole lot more of them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Be great. Well,
1: that's true. That's a good
0: point. Replacement cycle.
1: Yeah, that's true. You got to replace all the iPhones. Yeah, I mean, assuming a normal world iPhone sales are going to be pretty stable. Everybody who has an iPhone is going to need one every couple of years. So that's probably going to be fine. If we have a recession next year, I'm sure Apple will be intact. You might be able to get it at a cheaper price, but the moat's secure and the company will probably continue to grow. Uh, Tobias, thanks for coming on to the podcast today. It was uh, it was really great to talk with you. I think this was a wonderful discussion. And hopefully we'll speak more again.
0: My pleasure. Always great chatting to the wise and powerful VSG.
1: (laughs) Great talking with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.